One of the central purposes of our radio ministry is to stir up in our listeners a robust confidence in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for everything they need. As God's people satisfy themselves in the fullness of Jesus, He will become attractive to those around them. Welcome to the Bread of Life. As we listen today, let us pray that this desire will be met in our lives. Now here is our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. God has provided peace for those who break His moral laws through the sacrifice of His Son for our sins. At the end of Hebrews chapter 12, we are reminded that a long time ago, when the law was pronounced at Mount Sinai to the Jewish people by Moses, that the earth shook. Then the author tells us that now God is pronouncing the gospel of forgiveness from that law that we've broken, and He's pronouncing it in heaven. And as He does, the heavens shake with the news. It's a revolutionary truth that God has made known to us, a truth to which all people are now held to account, and which will wonderfully change us if we embrace it by faith, and will stand in judgment against us if we don't. The judgment of the law shakes the earth. The judgment of those who refuse the gospel will shake the heavens and the earth. Disobeying the law has consequences. Refusing and turning away from Christ and His gospel has far greater and more awful consequences. That's what's being said there. But then there's one thing that's clear in the passage. In the midst of this great universal shaking out that will take place, where everything that is not attached to faith and belief in the eternal Son of God is shaken and destroyed and will cease to remain before God forever, there is a promise that there will remain something that cannot be shaken, that will remain throughout all eternity, the essence of an unshakable kingdom that is being received or has been received by all who believe in the Son. And we might ask ourselves, what is the essence of that unshakable thing? that thing that will abide forever. The essence is this. A relationship of life and joy between the believer in Christ and the eternal God. That relationship cannot be shaken in time or eternity. Our forgiveness through Christ is an everlasting forgiveness. And our life in Christ is an everlasting life. It can't be shaken. It's ours. That's why Paul said at the end of Romans chapter 8, in verses 38 and 39, summing up this great declaration of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, for I am persuaded, and in a sense, he is following the exact pattern of that which is written in Hebrews, ending with a note of triumph, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's unshakable. And you've received it. This is your kingdom. This is what you're receiving. This is what you're participating in. What a grim thing to turn away from this everlasting good news and refuse it. What a great thing to turn into it. What a great thing to turn into it. Then the author concludes, for our God is a consuming fire. And for the believer, that's a celebration and a rejoicing. And for the one who turns away from him, it's a solemn warning. And so wins, in a sense, the argument of the book of Hebrews. 
There is the point and the high point of the argument in the book of Hebrews. That Christ has fulfilled all that has been anticipated. And Christ has answered all of the guilt that's piled up because of the failure of the Jewish people to obey the law of God. And He is everything that they could desire and everything that God has designed for their everlasting and eternal salvation. And by believing in Him, they are secured in Him in heaven. Before this consuming fire who is God and the judge, and yet before His presence, they rejoice and they remain there. It's an awesome truth. It's a wonderful truth. Now we move on to chapter 13. Now we move on to some applications that are made. Different individuals and commentators believe that actually this portion in chapter 13 is like a postscript. It's like a P.S. that's written at the end of the letter, at the end of this grand argument that Christ is all, and upon Christ all things are answered, and that all of our eternity hinges Some have suggested that this is actually like a cover letter. This is the strongest argument for this letter having been written by Paul because this last section is very Pauline in its construction. It's very much like all of Paul's other letters. You might keep in mind that when Paul was writing his other letters, that he was primarily writing to a Gentile community. And so the way he communicated to them was in sympathy with their Greek way of thinking. And this letter actually kind of goes back to that way in which Paul expresses himself. But the rest of Hebrews, if the letter is written by Paul, which, by the way, if you've noticed, oftentimes I say the author because the author is not mentioned, but every once in a while I forget and I slip in the word Paul. The rest of the book of Hebrews was written to Jews. It was expressed to Jews. There's this idea that this is like a cover letter that went over top of this argument, this grand argument. I don't know if that's the case. Actually, I think that what we see in this passage and what we'll learn in this passage is that great truths leave a mark on our lives. You cannot hold them, but that they take hold of you in the very direction that your life takes. If you believe them and you embrace them. Let's read Hebrews 13 verses 1 through 6 together and we'll consider more of this in the coming weeks. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So you may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I want to make an observation here on this passage that we've just read and the order in which it comes in the letter to the Hebrews, and I would point out to you that it's not unlike the order that you find in all the epistles of Paul and even the epistles of Peter, and that is this. All of these great letters to the churches begin with great doctrines. They begin with great truths rooted in the glory of God expressed and the glory of God's Son and the goodness of His gospel. And then from there, there flows out of it some application to the life of the individual. Hebrews, for 12 chapters, and we've been considering it, do you realize we've considered other passages and we've gone off and done another series in between this, but do you realize we began this consideration of the book of Hebrews in 2015? I went and found my first message at 2015. 
And we've been going through it and considering it week by week. And what you'll have a hard time doing through all of it is remember any point in which through it all, there was a section of it that was basically devoted to some principle or action of our common practice in life. Some moral activity that we can be engaged in. Some point of ethics that we could pick up. Some practical advice on how we should live. There's minimally some small expressions of it. They're like little hints that come gleaming through periodically. But if you look at the whole of it, over and over again, what is being discussed is the magnitude and the greatness and the majesty of Jesus Christ and His work on our behalf. For 12 chapters... The lofty doctrines are almost entirely the full focus of this letter, of this epistle. There's been little said of our conduct, little said by way of moral applications, because this truth must first rise and reign in the heart of everyone by faith. First, Christ must be exalted in his personhood. Then, Christ must be exalted in his position as our prophet and as our high priest and as our Savior, and as our King. And then Christ must be exalted in His work, proclaiming God's truth to us, fulfilling the perfect law that God gave to us in all righteousness, providing Himself fully as our sacrifice for our sins in answer to the justice of God, raising from the dead as an expression of the power of God, ascending and presenting us in Himself in heaven so that me might live and abide forgiven and right in the presence of God. He must be exalted. His person, his position, his work has to take first place in the wonder of all of our thoughts. The great word of the author of Hebrews writing the church is simply this, this word. If you want to underline and think of two words that you can steal away from the book of Hebrews and say, what will be the theme of the book of Hebrews? It's these two words, consider Christ, consider Christ. The great duty that he places upon those he's written to is this one thing, this supreme thing, consider Christ. In all of our living, and all of our praying, and all of our activity, and all of our service, and all the things that we take upon ourselves as responsibilities, all of them need to flow out of ourselves after we have followed this one supreme adjunction and gone with the author of the book of Hebrews in this one great endeavor, considering Christ, who He is, what He's done, His work, His goodness. Not simply considering that as an intellectual concept. Not simply considering it somehow as some sentimental journey, but considering it and considering Him as one who we live and breathe and find our being with Him. And so, this is the whole idea. This is the concept. This is the order of the New Testament life. This is the order of the Christian life. Great truths come first. Moral duties come second. The great truths of God and His great salvation are not just mental points of lofty thought. They're not just high points of emotional exhilaration. They're not just sentimental journeys that you go upon and take yourself through. They're high points of mind and heart from which all proper conduct flows. You come upon these truths. You settle upon them. And your works and your activity will flow gracefully and humbly down from them. Get this. 
You let your mind rest on the grand and noble and wonderful truths of the greatness of our Savior and the greatness of His salvation and the greatness of our standing and position in Him and all that you do and all of your labors and all the duties you seek to fulfill will graciously and with deep humility flow down from them. But you attempt to be morally good apart from these truths. You attempt to somehow aspire to some level of practice and activity, and you'll be pushing a river uphill. You'll be trying by your own self-righteous efforts to pursue and to express some noble activity, and it will not flow down. It will not move down from your life. It'll be pushing it out. That's how most people try to live their moral life. I'll be a good person. I'll be a better person. I'll prove that I can do this. I'll be a person who'll make my pledges and my vows and I'll keep them and I'll work and I'll labor and I'll show that I'm... It's like pushing water up a hill. It doesn't work very well. It makes life awful muddy is all. You'll get in a bog. But you come to these great truths and you lock your heart and your mind in them and you rest in them and you see that God has brought you to them and then life, life becomes easy. Listen, it becomes easy. When the Christian life is hard, it's because you've not lost yourself in the Christian gospel. When the Christian life becomes difficulty and a trudge, it's because you've not let yourself be captivated in the fullness of Christ. Well, you'll not come into the freedom of the Christian life by reading self-improvement books. Self only produces stress and strain and failure, but Christ, Christ in you, joyfully acknowledged, produces sunshine in life. Thanks for joining us today at the Bread of Life. Our ministry is brought to you by the International Evangelism and Discipleship Ministry, Church Partnership Evangelism. To learn more about that work, go to CPE Online. And to learn more about our local fellowship, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, God bless you.